Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality. That's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Thursday, June 8th, 2023, the 869th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't, or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free on a wide variety of podcast platforms. And of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. To get started today, I want to share an essay that appeared in The Federalist on Monday. The title of the essay is How Academic Debate Became a Propagandist Tool. And this is a subject that is right up my alley as someone who studied philosophy in college and studied symbolic logic, basically the form of argument 
in some sense, the math of argumentation. And as someone who is continually shocked and astounded by how little actual debate there is in our debates and how totally separated from the rules of formal logic and even just the common notion of what it is to reason we have gotten. This essay kind of presents the whole problem. The author here is August Mayrat. In a recent essay at the Free Press, James Fishback reports on the radical leftist bias that has taken over the judging of high school debates at the national level, although he focuses on the developments of a particular extracurricular program, his account should worry everyone since it's illustrative of what's happening to the culture at large. After showcasing his credentials as a former nationally ranked debater and debate coach, Fishback gives a not-so-hypothetical situation of a sophomore studying a debate topic intensely for months, only to discover that one of her judges is a radical leftist who has explicitly declared I am a Marxist, Leninist, Maoist. I cannot check the revolutionary proletarian science at the door when I'm judging. I will no longer evaluate and thus never vote for rightist, capitalist, imperialist positions and arguments. Although this judge was among the most aggressive and outspoken in her partiality, Fishback mentions others with similar profiles. No matter what side the sophomore must argue, she will need to make sure to do so with a leftist slant. And for anyone with an inkling of history, economics, and basic common sense, such leftist arguments are notoriously weak and incoherent, not to mention immoral. Thus, rather than learning more facts about her issue to make a stronger case, the sophomore is unlearning those facts to make a weaker case to a prejudiced judge. As Fishback notes, once students have been exposed to enough of these partisan paradigms, they internalize that point of view and adjust their arguments going forward. Over time, this practice of continually catering to leftist activists transforms young, talented debaters into committed ideologues and seasoned propagandists for the left. By extension, it transforms the whole culture of competitive debate into an absurd echo chamber where the very principles of a reasoned argument are replaced with mindless partisan signaling. And that is basically all of Twitter, by the way. Naturally, the habits and attitudes of these debaters have made their way onto college campuses. As with high school debate, more and more colleges have become the inverse of what they were originally designed to be. What were once centers of academic scholarship, ideological tolerance, and intellectual discipline have degenerated into cesspools of partisanship, anti-intellectualism, and groupthink. This was on full display a couple of weeks ago when Scott Atlas, a public health expert who happened to be right about everything on COVID, was heckled by graduating students at the new College of Florida and right about everything on COVID. Really not quite everything, but we can leave that aside. All that said, in the interest of following the rules of an honest and proper debate, it's worth considering whether Fishback's report is actually representative of what's happening in national high school debating circuits. Therefore, I asked Josh Herring, a fellow teacher and writer who happens to coach debate and even hosted a podcast about it to relate his experience. In my conversation with him, as well as in an article he wrote for The Federalist a few years ago, 
Herring attests to the leftist bias of judges and partisan pandering. According to Herring, the elite debate teams that usually win national competitions have all mastered the art of invoking critical theory and, quote, applying a critique to the debate's resolution. In layman's terms, this strategy involves shifting the debate from a specific topic to a general issue, usually pertaining to social justice. Herring gave me the example of a debate over Turkey joining the European Union. Here's the example. While debaters on one side research the topics and come up with economic and political reasons why Turkey should join the EU, debaters on the other side simply argue that the EU is a racist free market system that should be dismantled altogether. Thus, the debate quickly shifts from Turkey and the EU to the evils of capitalism and Western civilization. It's underhanded and unfair, but the judges often won't care and will usually reward these teams for pushing narratives they agree with. Herring did qualify this scenario by saying this was mostly a problem with the competitions hosted by the National Speech and Debate Association. Saner minds tend to prevail in alternative circuits and venues like the Coolidge Debate League, which Herring helped organize, as well as regional and local competitions in more conservative regions of the country. Debaters are usually judged more on the merits of the evidence, delivery and logic. Because of this, their arguments are much stronger and tightly focused, and the participants of their audience are better informed and have more understanding of the opposing side. Throughout America's history, the tradition of debate has been a centerpiece of free speech and democracy. Every major decision that has contributed to the progress and well-being of the nation, from declaring independence from England to ensuring basic civil rights for all citizens, has been the result of vigorous argumentation between multiple sides deploying an array of evidence, deductions, and rhetorical techniques. And while the better argument didn't always win right away, for example, the abolition of slavery, it would eventually happen when Americans finally arrived at the truth of the matter. Sadly, the idea of debating ideas on their objective merits has increasingly fallen by the wayside. Not only can this be seen in the left's collective opposition to open debate in the public square, but this is also happening in the world of formal debate itself. As it stands, the blatant partisanship and sophistry that Fishback and Herring talk about have already corrupted academic culture and public discourse, and it's only growing worse. On important issues that concern everyone, Pope Benedict's dictatorship of relativism has arrived in full force, with censorship, propaganda, and brazen intimidation pushing out what is true, good, and beautiful. When this happened in the past, people could count on talented debaters who would argue on behalf of the truth. Sadly, like snakes eating their own tails, today's talented debaters have abandoned the truth in pursuit of ending the real debate altogether. And I think that that is a wonderful short essay that really describes a key aspect of what we're dealing with right now. And this goes well beyond the Ben Shapiro facts over feelings idea. It's not one set of facts against another set of facts. That is not how the world works. That's not how argumentation works. And as we get further into this period and further see the breakdown of the idea that there is one knowable objective truth about everything, when there certainly is not, 
we're going to have to advance beyond saying, look at my facts and numbers. My facts and numbers are better than your facts and numbers. Therefore, we have to reach whatever conclusion I support. I made an extended argument about this a few months back in an episode called Gay Data. Data is not the end of every argument. One set of facts versus another set of facts is not the end of every argument. You can't say things like, and this is a real argument, by the way, that the communists have made in the last few years. You can't say women make 80 cents on the dollar. Therefore, we need massive federal funding for universities all around the country to increase the population of women students and have more students studying women and gender issues in college. That argument doesn't make sense. The first part isn't true. And the second part doesn't in any way follow from the first. But that is the sort of argument we're getting and the sort of argument that's being talked about in this little essay. Even if it was true that women and men, when compared on an apples to apples basis in terms of labor statistics and economics, even if women did make 80 cents on the man's dollar, which is not true in any sort of apples to apples comparison, that fact alone would say absolutely nothing about what needs to be done to solve that problem. If the goal was solving that problem, solving that supposed inequality, then we would want to get to the very bottom of that number, ask a bunch of questions about it. How did this number come to be? How did things come to be so unequal? And the answer, of course, is that the comparisons aren't valid at all. As soon as you begin to explore the question of that inequality, you see that the stat itself just falls away. It's not true. Therefore, it's useless. And it has no ability to say what should be done about it. It turns out that there are actually no women's issues, no women's agenda items that can be supported with this claim of the wage gap because the wage gap isn't true. But the wage gap is one of the most basic principles of feminist argumentation when it comes to labor and economics. They have hammered the idea for so long that women are mistreated in the workplace and that women are underpaid that everyone just assumes it's true. And so they can throw out statistics like this to make it sound like it really is true. And everybody's just like, well, yeah, I guess that that is what women deal with. And I don't want to be called a misogynist. I don't want to seem insensitive. So I guess we just better let them argue for whatever it is they want. We better just give it to them. And this is a trend not only in our politics, obviously, but in our debates and everything right now, for whatever reason, ends up being a debate. So many people online think that if they see something they don't agree with and they remark that they don't agree, the person they're commenting to has a responsibility to debate them until He has proven his case to the satisfaction of the person complaining. And this is why I often don't engage in any back and forth with people online. I mock them as soon as they come at me like this, because 
it's deserving of mocking. We need to get to a place where people can just say what they want and feel no need whatsoever to defend it. No one actually has that responsibility unless they are in some formal setting or if they care about the opinion of the person talking to them or if they have some professional basis for it or something. I'm not saying I'm not prepared to argue my points of view, but I'm not going to spend my time arguing them with everyone who wants to say I'm wrong. I express something I think someone else can express something they think. And people can say that we're right or that we are wrong. And that doesn't matter at all. We've basically entered this societal idea, this mindset where everyone is forced to debate if they want to be part of the public conversation. If they want to say things in public, they are then responsible for answering everyone's questions and complaints, no matter how they're formed, no matter how smart they are or how dumb they are. You just have to sit there and argue with everyone forever until everyone is satisfied. That is absolutely nuts. The best possible situation is everyone feeling free to say their opinion. And if their opinion is dumb and they're not prepared to argue for it and they can't bring any justification to have anyone else believe them, then they'll ultimately be ignored. No one actually has to do anything. That's what happens in the world to bad ideas. That happens naturally. Now, the problem is that we don't have that natural state of things anymore. We have been shifted because of the same phenomenon discussed in that essay into this situation where not only do we have to debate about everything and we have to debate about who has the best set of facts and numbers, we have to debate people who do not care about any part of normal debate. They are just trying to Figure out how to call you racist or sexist or homophobic or Islamophobic or a science denier or a vaccine denier or a climate denier or a QAnon or whatever it is. And why is this? It's because the people engaged in that style of argumentation know that there is a number of things that they are not allowed to say. Otherwise, the rules they have constructed inside the informational bubble will punish them. And the further you go into a communistic sort of society that is controlled by propaganda and censorship, the further you go into the false reality, the fewer choices you actually have about what you can say to win debates. You have to revert to these other things because all of the true things are things you're not allowed to say. Those things are off limits, but only to you, not to the person you're debating, which if you follow me on Twitter and you haven't realized, it's why I take the approach I take and I say the things that they are not allowed to say because they're going to get mad at me saying them. Now, that is not a proper tactic in a formal debate. But again, I'm not debating these people. I am just trying to make these people stop being morons. My goal is to let them know I'm not playing by their rules. I don't exist inside their informational bubble. They can get mad at me that I'm saying the things they're not allowed to say, but they're not going to make me stop saying those things. So if we're going to have a debate, 
I'm going to be using all of the stuff outside of your little informational propaganda censorship bubble where all the truth is everywhere outside of that is where the most important truth is. I'm going to use all that stuff. You go ahead and stay in your bubble. We are going to have a very short debate. Now, this bubble doesn't only exist for the uniparty left and their crazies in the high schools and the universities, as was mentioned in the essay. It exists on the uniparty right, too. For instance, they have decided that the most important issue in all of society is the woke stuff and the trans stuff. And I agree that that does get down to something very basic about humanity that is being intentionally gotten wrong by very evil people and that they are using that to exploit and abuse children. And all of that is terrible. Okay, I agree 100 percent about that. It just doesn't happen to be the only issue to focus on, nor the most important issue, nor is that issue best fixed by going around school by school around the country and trying to remove this or that policy or put a new policy in place and get the school board to vote on it, even though those school boards are not legitimately elected. There are deeper, more basic, more fundamental issues that must be taken care of. And when those issues are taken care of, the other stuff will be much easier to take care of. But you can't say that because that's what they want to talk about. That keeps the conversation inside the informational bubble. It keeps the conversation within the bounds of their construct. Similarly, you're not allowed to talk about widespread and overwhelming evidence of election fraud and the fact that everybody knows our elections are stolen. It's not a fringe minority position. It is the majority position in this country. But the uniparty left and the uniparty right agree that it can't be talked about because they can't argue on that basis. Why? Because they were told they would get in trouble for talking about that stuff. They agreed not to talk about it. And here we are two and a half years later, and all of those people have used this incorrect understanding of how the real world is to formulate all their other thoughts and arguments. They take an obvious falsehood and because of the incentives and punishment structure attached to that falsehood, they adopt the falsehood and they make it one of their foundational beliefs for everything else. If elections are free and fair, well, then Trump really did lose by a lot. And Kerry Lake really did lose. And all of the evidence is fake and the courts all got it right. And we just don't want to stick with those MAGA people because they're just going to lose again. That is like the entire reason for being of Ron DeSantis' campaign. But it's not true. And everyone pitching that idea to everyone else is only doing so on the understanding that the informational bubble and the bounds of polite conversation are going to protect them in the debate they think they're having outside of that bubble. It's easy to see that they make no sense. Their arguments are ridiculous. Hey, you saw something obvious and clear about the world and you have denied that thing so that you can comply with the rules you were given. And now you sound like a child. 
How are you going to win this debate that you keep thrusting on other people? We're not trying to debate you, child brain, my fair villager. You keep trying to debate us because you're saying you're right, we're wrong, and because we are wrong, we have to stop saying those things that exist outside the informational bubble. And this gets even more absurd when you get into the facts versus feelings thing. In that construct, and for people like Ben Shapiro, they would actually say that our belief that elections are stolen based on the evidence, based on logic, based on deduction, based on math, whatever you want to base your elections are stolen argument on. And there are hundreds of ways to make that argument. Ben Shapiro would say that is our feeling. It is our feeling that elections are stolen. It's not a fact that elections are stolen. It's a feeling that elections are stolen. We haven't proven it beyond a shadow of a doubt to someone with the very high standards of Ben Shapiro. So to Ben Shapiro, it is a fact that elections in our country are safe and secure and free and fair. And the results, the outcomes can be trusted. Ben Shapiro believes that all that is a fact and that our position is just feelings. So he has the facts. We have the feeling facts over feelings, folks. Don't be a dope gang. Everyone knows it's facts over feelings. And all of a sudden, Ben Shapiro has won an argument and you are a sophomore at a college campus who just got slammed by Ben Shapiro. And then the thug life music plays and the little glasses and the little joint go down over Ben Shapiro's face. And everybody thinks, oh, gosh, that Ben Shapiro, he is the champion of debaters of all time. Now, what would it be like? To debate Ben Shapiro on election fraud, would he say that it is a feeling to someone's face? Would he say, you just believe that that's your emotions talking? That's not the facts. The fact is that elections are safe and secure, free and fair. The whole thing. I don't know what he would say about that. I don't know if Ben Shapiro would have the courage to say to somebody's face. Yeah, you're just making all that up about election fraud. I mean, if it's not just facts versus feelings, then it's got to be a little more complex. What would it be like if the situation was turned around? If I was like, hey, Ben, do you think that Joe Biden received 81 million real lawful American votes? Does he say yes in that situation? How can he say yes in that situation? Does he say no? Does he say, yeah, there was probably some fraud, but not enough to overturn the election and then rely on appeals to authority like the courts never decided or Bill Barr says or Chris Krebs says those are all appeals to authority. That means somebody else made the decision and I agree with their decision. I accept their decision. I doubt he would do that. Not as the champion debater who is able to slam six or seven college gender studies sophomores in a single bound, not a debater of that quality. So what does he do? Does he say, yeah, I believe there was fraud, but the process played out and it just failed. So now I call Trump a loser. Does he say that? Because that's not the sort of thing a champion debater who can slam 19 or 20 college art history majors at once. How does he get out of that? And the truth is that nobody knows 
because they never talk about it. And why do they never talk about it? Why do they never debate these subjects? And it's because all the truth of these subjects exists outside of the bounds of that informational bubble. So what do you have left in a debate when all of the true stuff outside the informational bubble is inaccessible to you? It's totally unusable for the debate. What then are you supposed to do? The truth is you really don't have a choice. If you want to win, then you have to use tactics that aren't part of actual debate. You have to use the system in the formal judging of debates in a formalized debate setting by playing to the judges. You have to understand that the system is rigged and hope that you can win within that rigged system, except you never will be able to when you're facing up against someone whose side rigged the system for situations just like that. Now, you see, here's the hard part, because people don't want to look like they're losing debates, not in that setting, certainly because that's an actual competition, but also not in public. People think that losing a debate in public is embarrassing or more accurately, I should say, people think that seeming to have lost a debate in public is embarrassing. What's key is the perception of others in this equation. When all those crazy commie tactics are applied, people can immediately feel themselves being attacked on these fundamental moral grounds. You're a racist, you're a sexist, you're a vax denier, you're a climate denier. And people understand that in the public eye, those are powerful claims, or at least they are to a certain kind of observer, though those people are fading away every day. The point is that you will immediately feel attacked. You'll feel embarrassed. You'll worry what the other people are thinking. Do all these people think I'm now a racist, sexist, Islamophobic, vax and science denier? Gosh, that's terrible. How am I going to keep working at my job? How am I going to be allowed to say things online? How am I going to be able to earn a living? And have access to buy money if everyone out there thinks I'm a racist, sexist, Islamophobic vax denier. And whatever happens at that moment, a little switch is flipped and people are like, oh, man, I'm too scared to have this debate on normal debating terms. I guess we're just playing his game now. I've just been pulled inside the informational bubble and now I can feel all its boundaries. I'm subject to this space. What am I going to do now? I have to fight my way out of this. Well, no, you don't. And that's the thing. No, you don't. You don't have to be in these debates at all in the first place, unless you're a formal debater or unless you're in a professional setting. You can just be like, okay, Kami, cool story. Go with that. And you can laugh and you can walk away. On social media, you can make fun of them in thousands of ways until they get angry and understand that you're not going to debate them. You don't have to be involved in any of these debates at all. You can just say the things that you think are true. If someone says, hey, why do you think that? I see it this way. And you want to engage a conversation, engage a conversation. But that's not a debate. That's just a conversation. Hey, I have some things that I think. Would you like to know about them? You have some things that you think. I would like to know about those too. Let's have a conversation and we'll exchange some things we think. And maybe you'll teach me something and I'll teach you something. Or maybe you will help me refine one of my ideas as you ask questions. 
All of that is absolutely lovely, but that's not a debate. And you don't have to be in a debate. You don't have to accept a debate. But if you're going to play that game, then you have to at least stand up for the terms of proper debate. You get to use all the facts and you have to use real logic and real reason and real argumentation. Because otherwise, it's just a show for the other people watching. And again, that's fine too. Just know what you're dealing with. If you're going to put on a show for the people watching, then make sure you hammer your parts as hard as possible in the most entertaining way you can imagine. And there's a good chance that people will be entertained. Go ahead and try it at a barbecue this summer. You might find out you're not very good at it. And in that case, maybe that's not your tactic. But again, you don't have to put on a show for the people watching. The point is to know whether or not you're in a debate. And if you are and you want to be, then you have to force people to obey the laws of debating. And here's a perfect example from history. I was listening to this last night. I am a fan of this Rumble account and probably a YouTube account. And people probably know this account far better than I do. But it's called Mr. Truth Bomb. And there are a bunch of historical documentaries with clips talking about all of this history that we weren't taught. And I was watching an episode last night on Joseph McCarthy, the much maligned Wisconsin senator who was basically trying to rid the U.S. government of all its communists and communist influences. And that is why he's been attacked for so long. McCarthyism. We're all kind of familiar with that. People having like a targets list, an enemy list, and then pursuing them through any means necessary, using the power of the state against them, blah, blah, blah. All the things that Joseph McCarthy has been accused of. The truth is he was just going after communists and communists were not very happy about it. So they have created the stories they have created about McCarthy to make sure that no one else ever pursues communists in the American government so vigorously. My hope is that we have an entire American government of people who pursue communists so vigorously. So he's having an exchange with this man named Joseph Welch, and he brings up the fact that Joseph Welch has a man named Fisher at his law firm who is or has been a member of communist organizations. And listen to what Welch tries to do to McCarthy. Committee know uh, whether you knew that he was a member of that uh, communist organization or not, I don't know. I assume you did not, Mr. Welch, because I get the impression that while you are quite an actor, you play for a laugh, I don't think you have any conception of the danger of the communist party. I don't think you yourself would ever knowingly aid the communist cause. I think you were unknowingly aiding it when you try to burlesque this hearing in which we are attempting to bring out the class. Until this moment, Senator, I think I never really gauged your cruelty or your recklessness. Little did I dream you could be so reckless. 
and so cruel as to do an injury to that lad. It is true he is still with Hale and Dorr. It is true that he will continue to be with Hale and Dorr. It is, I regret to say, equally true that I fear he shall always bear a scar needlessly inflicted by you. If it were in my power to forgive you for your reckless cruelty, I would do so. I like to think I'm a gentleman, but your forgiveness will have to come from someone other than me. So McCarthy accused Fisher of being or having been in a communist organization and still working for the law firm that Joseph Welch is associated with, which seems to be a fact. Joseph Welch doesn't deny it. What does he say? He says your cruelty and recklessness are unmatched. I could have never suspected a cruelty and recklessness so severe. I hope that one day there is someone who can forgive you for your cruelty and recklessness, but by God, it's not me. And he keeps going. Mr. Chairman. Uh, may, may I say that uh, Mr. Wells talks about this being cruel and reckless. He was just baiting. He has been baiting Mr. Cohen here for hours requesting that Mr. Cohen, before sundown, get out of any department of the government, anyone who is serving the communist cause. Now, I just give this man's record, and I want to say, Mr. Welch, that it has been labeled long before he became a member, as early as 1944, Senator, may we not drop this? We know he belongs to the Lawyers Guild. And Mr. Cohn nods his head at me. I did you, I think, no personal injury, Mr. Cohn. No, sir. I meant to do you no personal injury. And if I did, I beg your pardon. Let us not assassinate this lad further, Senator. You've done enough. Have you no sense of decency, sir, at long last? Have you left no sense of decency? I know this hurts you, Mr. Welch. I'll but say it hurts. I say, Mr. Chairman, as a point of personal privilege, I'd like to finish this. Senator, I think it hurts you too, I'd, sir. I'd like to finish this. And Mr. Welch, if, if I have said anything here which is untrue, then tell me. I have heard you and everyone else talk so much about laying the truth upon the table, that when I heard the completely phony Mr. Welch, I've listened to you now for a long time, to saying now before sundown, you must get these people out of government. So that I just want to have it very clear, very clear that you were not so serious about that when you tried to recommend this man for this committee. Mr. McCarthy, I will not discuss this further with you. You have sat within six feet of me and could, ask, could have asked me about Fred Fisher. You have seen fit to bring it out. 
And if there is a God in heaven, it will do neither you nor your cause any good. I will not discuss it further. You gotta love the communist at the end, suggesting that if there was a God, he certainly would not be on your side. Joseph McCarthy, have you no decency, sir? It's like an old movie. But the thing is, Welch did not dispute the claims about the lawyer. He got mad that it was brought up in public rather than in private. He tried to attack McCarthy's character and lay upon him this eternal condemnation. You will never recover from this moral wrong you have done today, sir. Your cruelty and recklessness being thrust upon me. How could you say something about this young communist lawyer? I mean, young lawyer who is a communist, but don't call him a communist, please. It's cruel and reckless to call communists communists, even if they call themselves communists. And that is a lesson that has actually been passed down now through the decades. That was 1954. And actually, it was June 9th, 1954. So happy 69th anniversary tomorrow, I guess. But right there, we have the roots of that argument that you're not allowed to call communists communists. And I certainly got in plenty of trouble for this in 2020 and since because I've been calling them communists right to their face for that entire time because that's what you're supposed to do, by the way. If people representing systems of power, especially communists representing systems of power, tell you that you're not allowed to do something that you definitely are by law and by standards of morality allowed to do, you basically have to do that thing. It's your duty. At least that's how I live. If you're telling me that we can't call people communists, I'm going to assume that whoever made up that rule was trying to protect communists. And of course, that rule came from this where they are trying to protect communists. We hear it all the time. Red baiting, red scare. You're just calling us and our evil utopian ideas communist so that people won't listen to us. Well, no, commie. I mean, that is a helpful result of letting people know that you're communists, but I am calling you communists because you are pushing communism and communism is evil. And I'm sick of living in a society that can't call out evil when and where it exists. Because once we lose the ability to do that, then we really don't have the ability to enforce any sort of morality whatsoever. And I mean culturally enforce, not using the power of the state. If we can't say that certain things are evil, then all we're left with is moral relativism. And at bottom, that just means that anyone can decide to do anything they want as long as they supply some sort of justification about how they're allowed to do it and they think it's good and it doesn't hurt anyone else. Therefore, it's just fine and no one can stop it. And they make those arguments about everything. I mean, think about the slave trade on the southern border right now. That is a human trafficking operation, a drug trafficking operation, a sex trafficking operation. It's run by vicious cartels who will murder and rape and kidnap and assault and everything else. 
brings drugs into America that destroy our communities and our families and people's lives. Something like 50 to maybe even 75% of the women who make that journey are raped and sexually assaulted before they get to the border. These people are scouted and recruited from poor, impoverished countries, impoverished by the regime, and they are brought overseas to then make that trip. And we're told we can't say any of that stuff because if we do, then we're being racist. It's our fault. But regardless, it's happening and it has to happen because these people are fleeing poverty and violence and climate change. These are the only arguments that exist inside that informational bubble. The facts outside the informational bubble are inaccessible to these people. So among the facts that they have, the ones they're allowed to use and think about, you're actually the evil one for trying to stop the slave trade. What they're doing is not only morally acceptable, it's morally necessary as a good person to help facilitate that slave trade because those people are going to come here one way or another. So we might as well do everything we can to give them a comfy ride. And when all those awful things happen in the process, well, that's just a fact of life because these people needed to escape. And all of a sudden, you found yourself arguing for the necessity of a slave trade and everything that comes with it, because otherwise you're racist. And in a morally relativistic world, you can't really argue that that is actually morally wrong. You basically just have to present a bunch of facts and a bunch of statistics and a bunch of data and say, well, you know, I think that my point of view is better than your point of view. My facts and numbers, that's the right set of facts and numbers. And now you have to accept that I have won this debate, but they're not going to do that. And that's a problem with living in a morally relativistic society that thinks everything is decided by facts. You basically remove morality from a debate altogether. You can't argue about whether or not something is right or wrong. Things just are. There are numbers, there are data, there's science, there's facts. Things just are. There's no right and wrong. So you can't argue about that. And it turns out you can't argue about a bunch of the facts because the facts are outside the bubble and facts outside the bubble just aren't allowed in the debate. The only thing inside the bubble is propaganda and censored information. That's all that's allowed in the debate. So all we can debate now is propaganda and censored information. And we have to compare our propaganda and censored information to someone else's propaganda and censored information. And whichever set of propaganda and censored information most aligns with the people viewing the debate. Well, that's the side that wins. That is where we are now. And that's why everything is so dumb. We have reached the point now where debate itself consists in an argument from authority using only the facts about the world derived from the authoritative source. Everything that is inside the central narrative, part of the official story. That's what we're allowed to use all of it, an argument from authority. All of it says this is the true thing because this is what the people in power have agreed is true. The debate itself is a logical fallacy and winning the debate 
is similarly illogical. It's just an appeal to authority. You're making an argument from authority in an appeal to authority, and you hope to end up on the right side. That is where we are now. So I know it's a bit of an unusual episode today, but I wanted to talk about that. And I got kind of inspired with that little exchange in the McCarthy hearings, obviously not a formal debate setting. And McCarthy himself was not obeying the rules of formal debate or anything like that. I was not trying to make that point. It was just interesting to see how the communist responded to him and tried to make him out to be evil and vicious, reckless and cruel without refuting any of his points, without denying any of his facts and how that was not only exemplary of what we deal with now, but was literally one of the seminal incidents that has done so much work to make the public conversation as it is now. So I figure I've done three super long episodes this week. We'll keep this one short. Just a heads up, I am going to be joining CanCon on the Friday morning edition of Badlands Daily starting tomorrow and extending out into the future. So you can find that on the Badlands Media channel on Rumble, perhaps even on YouTube. And we will be discussing all the news of today that you didn't happen to get in this podcast episode right now. And I will be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode, and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.CancelCouture.com, and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!